Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Podcast. This is a series of podcasts with past winners of the Outstanding Supervisor Award here at Michigan State University. And sitting in my office today, I have from MSU Safe Place, 2014 Outstanding Supervisor Award winner, Holly Rosen. Holly, good morning. Good morning, John. How are you doing this early in the morning? This is an early one for me. Oh, is it? No, this is fine for me. I'm doing great. And I'm starting to get used to the uh, insulation or lack thereof here in Linton Hall because it was a cold morning ah. and uh, my hands are still a little a little cold. So hopefully that doesn't affect too much of this podcast. Me thinking about where I can get my next uh, warmth for my hands. Right. Do you have the same place where, or same situation where you're at at Safe Place? Do you have an old building like this, Linton Hall? We actually have a confidential location, but it is an old building, and so um, we have fans. And um, I don't need a heater in my area because I have a sweater and can layer up, but it doesn't get too cold. Uh, getting too hot is another issue, but. All right, that's the first good tip that we've got from this podcast. Bring a sweater and have right. that on. I have layer up. Of, yeah, layer up. Uh, and that, so that's, uh, that's a little joke, but the intent of this uh, podcast is really to give practical tips to folks across our campuses about how to um, perform outstanding supervision for teams uh, and employees. You know, employees can actually listen to this too and get some ideas about their own supervisor, maybe some tips that they can offer to their supervisor. Uh, And it's not just how to be a nice person and a nice supervisor. As we'll discuss, it's also practical tips like flex time. You know, even a lot of supervisors don't know about flex time and how to incorporate that into a team. And there are other circumstances and situations that we'll talk about. Uh, So we are here to talk about outstanding supervision. And as the winner of the 2014 award you know the first thing i have to ask is do you remember getting the award oh absolutely yeah do you remember who nominated you yeah we there were a few of my colleagues that nominated me did you expect it no not at all came out of nowhere it did even though you're so great you didn't know how great you really were (laughs) until somebody had to bring a cake in and tell you right right (laughs) uh well what are some of the memories that stand out about the nominating letters or the experiences there you know because i just did one i just did one we had somebody here uh, in 2019 that just received an award and of course i've done 10 of these podcasts already so i've got some memories but the thing that stuck out to me about the one that we just did was the individual came in during a very rocky period and then kind of steadied the ship. Oh, that's rough, yeah. You know, so that's what stood out from that one. Was there anything that stood out from your time when you received it, or did they just tell you that you were a great, nice person? They told me I was awesome. And (laughs) the thing is, um, I was uh, in place as the director since the beginning of MSU Safe Place. So it, it started in 1994. So I've been 25 years now at the university. So I didn't have to come in and make changes, but I know that that's very challenging for the employees in any unit as well as the supervisor. Yeah, I noticed that you've been here uh, for that duration, and it led me to think how you have a different type of challenge for being a supervisor. Because me, I mentioned this, this to you before we started recording, I come in, I've had a lot of grant work, so my tenures have been short. I come in, change a lot of things, and then I leave. You've been here for 25 years now, so I have written down here to ask you, how do you still make improvements now, this being your 25th, 26th year, 
Uh, how do you keep making sure that you're up to speed on the changes and um, that you're improving so that you're not just reverting back to the same uh, things that you were doing 25 years ago? Right. So when we started 25 years ago, it was just me. Then I had a grad assistant. Then I had just volunteers and interns. Um, then we had a grant for several years where we had more staff. And now it's just three of us. So it's me, and we have two advocates at MSU Safe Place, and they've both been here for 18 years. So we have a lot of longevity on our staff. Um, I think that we uh, we have interns every year as well, so we really try to incorporate their ideas, new ideas. We uh, take part in a lot of conferences and webinars, and and work very closely with our colleagues. We don't we do not work in a silo at all, and so we're constantly getting new ideas on ways to improve our programs or to shift them a bit, uh, social media and other things as well. So. Um, I, I just love working at Safe Place. There's so many different things that we work on, and I think that's what makes it um, interesting for, for my two staff and for myself because there's just a lot of work to do, but it's fun as well. It's a good point you bring up about interns. We just got one here in the work-life office. And, you know, on some on one hand, interns are a little resource-intensive. you got to supervise. you got to put in the time and the energy. But then... Aside from all the work that they do, the new perspective, you know, you really get an outside perspective and a lot of enthusiasm um, around the work and new ideas. Yes. You know, are there any specific new ideas you can think of uh, from your past interns that they've brought over the past couple years, ranging from like new ways to communicate, new technological tools, or just ideas that have kind of changed the way uh, Safe Place has been operating based on some input from interns. Anything you oh, can think of? When we do community education, mm-hmm. different messages we do, um, social media, different ways to get the word out. Because here's the thing about programs like MSU Safe Place. You know, we're on campus 25 years. Most people don't know about us. They might have heard our name before. But unless you need the services or have worked with our program in some way, um, a lot of people just don't know about it. So it's really important that we're constantly getting the word out about who we are. And interns bring a, a fresh way, a new way of kind of getting the word out. Uh, so those are some examples. Yeah. I know of a Safe Place because of Race for the Place. Oh, yes. Our Race for the Place every April. I really enjoyed that run. It's a big run. Yeah, it's a big run. We, um, we, it's a family event, too. So um, people support us because they support our mission, or they are runners or walkers, or they want a fun family event. So we get all kind of three different populations showing up and um, it is a lot of work planning and coordinating with uh, our partners and getting um, s- uh, financial sponsorship support. Um, but we, we love doing it. I look forward to it every April as well. I learned a lot. I, rem- I remember the quilt that was there. Um, still have that memory to this day. In terms of um, running that, no pun intended, running that run, <laughs> um, I'm going to assume that you can't just do it with your uh, two advocates, that you're going to engage a lot of volunteers. Um, so, And I know because I saw them there when I was running that race. Yes. Uh, so can is there anything different when you supervise and manage volunteers, or do you just have somebody do it on your team? Is there anything different when you manage interns, volunteers, paid staff? Are there differences between all three? There's definitely differences, but there's a lot of overlap that's the same. So when we um, we have our interns, I supervise the social work interns, and our volunteer coordinator supervises non-social work interns. Um, and with interns, you want to look at career management, kind of what are their goals. You want to work with them in the long haul, give them some skills. 
um, tangible skills that they can walk away with. You want to get input, what would make our program better, ideas they have, that kind of thing. Giving them feedback, giving them opportunity to try out new things and grow, um, doing supervision. It is very time-intensive for interns. For volunteers, for an event like the race, oh, it's a lot of coordination, and our volunteer coordinator manages that. We have over 100 volunteers. They run the, they run the course. You know, they, they do the food areas. There's just a lot of things that they do. Um, to manage the event from like 8.30 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. It's a long, busy day, set up, break down, that kind of thing. And for that, you just really need good communication and organization to say, hey, would you like to volunteer for this event? These are your options on time slots. These are the different tasks that you could do. And then when they get there, having a good way to receive them, uh, thank them and instruct them. And that's, that does take a lot of work, but it is a different skill than interns, which is for the long haul. And, of course, for paid staff, which is for a longer haul. Yeah, ideally. Ideally. Yes, you never hopefully. Know. hopefully. I, I hear uh, two things that you mentioned with volunteers that are um, just as important with paid staff. And that is, uh, number one, a real clarity on the tasks you know, laid out. So with the volunteers, like you said, they need to know what time they have to show up and what they're going to do. Um, so let's let's talk about paid staff, and, and I know your folks have worked there for quite a long time. But how do you manage to be very clear with the expectations and the job duties for those who you supervise? Do you um, review the job tasks, you know, uh, periodically? Um, do you just expect that everything from these uh, 2001 job descriptions is still the same in 2019, or how do you ensure that your team members know? Um, what they're supposed to be doing, and that there's clarity on the tasks. So when we first had them hired 18 years ago, I met with them once a week, and the annual evaluations had specific tasks that were outlined with a rating score of, you know, not quite competent or understanding what the task is to fully competent and, and doing it really well. And I would have them fill it out on themselves. They would rate themselves, and then I would rate them, and I would have another staff person or volunteer rate them too, because that's, which is easier to do on a large team. We're, we're a very small team. But it gives people feedback in a different way. They're evaluating themselves, but they're also having a colleague look at them. Um, it's a model I learned at a different nonprofit, and it worked really well. Um, after a while, we stopped doing that intensive uh, annual evaluations. I went from... I'll meet with you weekly to just peek in my office when you need to. Um, maybe it was once a month for a while, and now it's just an open door. I mean, they've been there for 18 years. Um, so I think that the supervision that's required will vary greatly depending on how long they've worked there, what kind of experience they have in the past in doing these kind of tasks and that kind of thing. Now, with the open door, in, in, so I'm going to assume that you have great long-term relationships with your team members. And that's an assumption that may or may not be accurate. I don't know because I don't know your team members. But um, it's also an assumption with the open door. And so uh, I'll challenge you um, on that to give the listeners some uh, way of knowing that that's enough, having an open door. And here's what I mean. Uh, If you set a weekly meeting with your staff members, then every week that staff member is going to engage with you. And I've talked to another uh, interviewee about this where if you cancel that weekly meeting, that's a bad look for your staff member. I know because I've been supervised before and, you know, my boss would cancel them for four or five, six weeks in a row. And that, you know, it kind of hurts my feelings as a staff member. So as you peel back and peel away and say, 
let's not have these uh, every week. And I'm sure that's mutually agreeable with your staff. And then uh, let's have them every month. And then now it's an open door, so it's not scheduled. My question is, that sounds good, but I'm wondering, how, how do you ensure that the employee's needs are met without this regular cadence that almost forces them to get into you? Right. So when I went with my current staff from weekly to as needed, they determined it. So I said, you probably don't need to check with me every time you meet with a client or have, have issues or community meeting um, to process what to do or how to handle it because you now have been doing it for so long. So you decide when you want to meet with me. But if there are any issues um, with them not being accountable on completing job tasks or if I just had questions about things that they were doing, um, I, would, I could meet with them anytime too. But we also have staff meetings every week too, and that's where a lot of discussion about our policies and our clients and just things in general would come up. And because they're both advocates, something that affected one might affect the other. And um, the other thing I think that has contributed to the longevity of my staff, besides my being flexible with their time, which we can talk to about at some point, is also that even though I'm their supervisor, we make team decisions. And so when we have our scholarship fund, for instance, we have an endowment fund for students who, if they've experienced domestic violence or stalking and it's interfered with their ability to continue their education, um, we have a scholarship fund. It's a team decision on how much we allocate when people fill out an application or if we're, we have an advocacy assistance fund. So if we decide to spend money on any clients um, to help them out, we talk about it as a staff and decide. So there's a lot of autonomy that they have, but they have input into our policy and decisions about our program. And I think that it, they value, they know I value their opinion. And I might have the bottom line and the last word, but for the most part, it's teamwork. And I look to them a lot on their guidance, too. What do you think about this? Even if I'm having a situation that's unique, I might go to them and say, what do you think about how I might handle this? Because they know the domestic violence work. My supervisors over the years don't. And so I'm less likely to go to my supervisor about processing on that level of detail than I am to my staff. So it kind of works both ways in terms of support. Now, uh, I hear that you give your staff members autonomy and uh, request their input on decisions. And you're an outstanding supervisor, award winner, so obviously that's been working. But what happens when it flops? And here's what I mean. You ask for input from your team members and they say, I think we should do it like this, you know. And then you implement the uh, change in the program and then it doesn't work out. The program kind of flops. Either there's no attendance or um, the outcomes aren't what you expected. So in other words, you ask for input from your staff and then it didn't work out so well. So if your if your staff members, you know, takes it internally, internalizes it, they look at something that they contributed to that flop. So how do you navigate that both having the open, you know, stream of input and asking for your uh, your team members to contribute to the function of the office, but also figuring out what to do when something fails, and then you got a team member that doesn't feel as confident maybe as they once once have. How do you how do you navigate that? Well, I don't I don't deal with that in my office because you know all three of us at Safe Place are very comfortable giving our opinions and um, 
being assertive in what we want and need and processing things. And if we feel upset about something, getting support from each other. But if I was in a unit and that was a situation, I would be watchful. I would be, um, you know, I do this with interns all the time, is how are they responding? And if if they're taking taking it in as blaming themselves, then mm-hmm. I would challenge that. And I'd say, look, we decided that we would do it this way and it had zero participation. Let's just learn from it. I wouldn't, I mean, none of us have crystal balls, right? So <laughs> um, a lot of the work that we do is trial and error, and so we learn from it. I would never blame someone who um, is on my team that made a decision and it, it ended poorly. We would just learn from it. Yeah, we should learn from everything. Um, even even the um, the successes and the failures, you know, right. if we can learn and adjust, that's what we're here for. Now, with supervision for interns, I do face this because mm-hmm. I get new interns year after year, and some are very insecure and lack confidence. And if something goes badly in a support group that they're facilitating, or in a program, a community education program that they're facilitating, um, they might think that I'm going to be angry at them or that they failed. And so I, I look out for that and process, hey, how did it go? How are you feeling about it? And they need more of that hand-holding and processing when they're new. And I can, I can give extra attention to those who take it in as their fault or feel badly about something or you know, stop communicating because they're upset about something. I have an open-door policy with interns, too. We have group supervision, but I know that there might be issues that they have that are private, and they don't want to talk about it with other interns present, and I always have an open-door policy for them regarding that, or just even if an issue comes up, they can't wait till we meet as a group. Um, but I know that some interns require more um, processing and hand-holding than, than staff do, and, and pushing, too, because some people don't follow through when they say they're going to do things. And, and I think if you're a flexible supervisor... If it doesn't work and people take advantage of that and they say they're doing things or working remote or flexing their hours and you see that they're not working the full amount of time they should be, you call them out on that. You don't disregard and throw out the flexibility. And that's a, that's a problem that I see sometimes, is especially with supervisors that don't have a lot of experience. They'll say, this didn't work, so we're going to change the policy. Everybody has to be here 8 to 5 now. And that's just kind of a rigid response that isn't very helpful. Yeah, I've uh I've seen that before. And uh it doesn't it doesn't really cater to the individual circumstances That's right. that team members um are going through. And uh so uh, there's another uh situation that can come out of that as well that I've seen and it is um a supervisor who wants to standardize um, flex scheduling, for example, based on some some sort of equity or equality am, among team members, and that is to say, for example, um, this person uh, can't work from home two days to babysit their kids because we all can't stay home two hours a day because I like I don't even have kids, for example, so I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so how the question then comes in: How are you able to provide flex scheduling? for your staff who have different needs and different circumstances, all the while ensuring that everyone is receiving equitable and fair treatment, you know, when they have different schedules. Yeah, so in safe place, it's easy. There's three of us. (laughs) Um, But I could see having a staff of, you know, 10 or 30 or 50. It would Mm -hmm. be really difficult. But here's the thing. People need to be home with their kids typically um, when the children are younger or have health issues. Um, or situations that might require more care that might be long-term. 
but that's a minority of our of our employees, and it's also for a short term period. So here's the thing, like when my first when the eighteen years the staff who have been in, at Safe Place for eighteen years first came on, they both wanted to get their masters, and so I offered flexible schedules for them so that they could go to classes and meet their internship requirements and that kind of thing. And I was looking at it for the long haul, and look, it's paid off. So I feel like you have a staff member who has an infant and a five-year-old, they're only going to need this flex time perhaps for a few years. Um, Accommodate that if you want to have them there for the long haul. And even if they aren't there for the long haul, you know, they could be there uh, real early in the morning and leave in the afternoon or or work remotely. Like, you're not going to have 100% of your, of your employees wanting that at the same time. And if they are, you just sit down and say, okay, how should we do the scheduling for this? How should we manage this as a team? Uh, now, along those lines, but sort of a, a different tangent, uh, how are you able to, or can you give any tips for the listeners as to ways to identify um, more hidden needs for flex scheduling? Myself, as another example, um, I don't have kids, so it's not as visible that I need to go home and pick up my kids today from school. On the other hand, I'm caring for an, a senior elderly parent, mm-hmm. but I don't talk about that a lot. I mean, I'm just uh, giving a little her, her, sure. her hyperbole. Well, I'm really caring yeah, for really an elderly I really right. am, but I do talk about it a lot, and uh-huh. that's how my, my boss knows. But um, if that individual um, isn't as um, you know out front about it, how are you able to identify needs on your team for um, you know either flex schedules or other circumstances that that aren't as out front? How do you determine when your staff member has a need um, and that you can step in and provide resources to fill that need? How do you identify those? Well, I want to encourage supervisors to encourage their employees to talk about those kind of issues, and I want to encourage employees to identify it and think, what do I need? And to go to the supervisor and and have a plan in mind and say, you know what, whether they want to share who they're caring for or what the situation is, they could say there's something in my life personally that's going to require more time for the next six months or three months or I don't know how long. Um, You know, and I, I want to bring it to the table and say, can we have some flexibility? It would really help if I can occasionally leave at 3 or at 2.30 and work later or work remote um, I'll make sure the work is done. I can let you know what I'm doing when I'm remote or adjusting my hours. Um, is that something that I could do? But I don't always know ahead of time a flex schedule because it's unpredictable. So that's an example of a supervisor, you know, being flexible and saying, sure, let's work it out. And, and some and some offices, maybe they can't because if the person is staffing a desk and it's a reception desk from 8 to 5, they might have to pull other staff in. So it might take more coordination than a person who has uh, uh, the type of schedule where they're in and out of the office doing different things. Mm-hmm. Some of uh, my other podcast guests have talked about that coordination, mm-hmm. where especially in terms of like the front desk person or, or someone who's even teaching a class, and faculty will come in and teach that class for a, a couple weeks maybe if that individual has been pulled away for another um, situation. So um, Now, I, I see a lot of good out of flex scheduling, um, and I've experienced it myself. But there are going to be people that abuse it, perhaps, both supervisors and employees. Um, And in your case, I'm going to guess it might not be those folks that have been around 18 years. They probably got it down, but you see a lot of interns. So just sheer numbers, 
I'm going to say there's got to be an intern along the way that has um, kind of uh, misused flex scheduling. Maybe you've experienced it or maybe this is a hypothetical. What happens, we'll talk about it in terms of a hypothetical, how do you address that uh, when somebody misuses a flex uh, schedule agreement that you've already put into place? So is it that they're saying they'll come in from 7 to 3 or something and they're you're hearing that they're not there at seven or they're leaving at two thirty. What is it that they're, or they, you don't think they're doing the work when they're, are they working remote? Like what is the issue? And then I'll tell you how I would handle it. it it's going to be the schedule issue. Okay. So let's go into that seven to three thing. So somebody says, uh, yeah, uh, I need to come in at 7 a.m. Now everybody else in the office comes in at 9 a.m., right. but they say, I'm going to be here at seven every day. And then I'm going to leave two hours early. Well, um, and this is hypothetical, but you come in one day at 8 a.m. and they're not here. Right. <laughs> or I call and they don't pick up the, the office line or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then the worry creeps in that they haven't been coming in at 7 all, all of right. these times. Well, you know, there's no way to know historically what's happened. But um, I would approach the person and say, you know, I need to talk. You know, I called you the other day at 7.15 or 8 o'clock and, and you didn't answer. And I left a message and you didn't call me back till 9.30. Or... Um, or maybe I stopped by at 8 and you weren't here. Tell me what was going on then. And I would hear their story and see. And if it's a pattern, I would say, look, I want to be able to continue this flexible schedule, um, but I need to know that you're going to be here from 7 to 3. And when you're not, I need to know exceptions to that. Like if you step out and get our mail or you do this or that and you're not in the office, I need to be able to have an explanation. I'm not going to micromanage you, but if you're going to be here from 7 to 3, you need to be here from 7 to 3. Um, now, I'm not the kind of person that, like, if they're coming in at 710, you know, or they're leaving yeah. at 250, that I'm going to micromanage that unless it's a pattern. You know, if it's a pattern, yeah, I'm going to pull them aside and say, hey, you're scheduled till 3, but I see you pulling out in your car at 250. What's going on? What, what, what's going on with that? This is, like, several times in the last couple of weeks I've noticed that, you know, and then they can say, oh, I'm sorry. And the thing is, when people try to um, get out of being accountable, if people just look the other way or don't address it, it could snowball or stay the same. Yeah. And there's you're not going to be able to address it unless, as a supervisor, you feel comfortable just checking it out. And I would not jump immediately to removing the flex time or to imposing consequences. I'd be like, hey, what's going on? Tell me about this. Because I need to rely on you, and yet I want you to have flex time. So let's work towards that win-win. Yeah, sure. Um, and so uh, also with those interns, many, many interns that you've had over the years, you're going to get a lot of information once they leave. I, you know, we, you and I talked a little bit before uh, we started recording about um, an an exit interview strategy that you have to get gather information from the interns that come into your uh, office and contribute to your team every spring and summer. So, can you talk a little bit about how you get that uh, exit information, whether or not it's confidential, anonymous, who they talk to, do they submit a form? And at the end of the day, how is it valuable to you? So talk about your process and then what you actually use information for. Right. So, I mean, we talked about having a staff person sit down with somebody and do an exit interview or using kind of a, a survey tool. And we decided, since we're such a small staff, that we would do a survey tool. However, if we ever had an intern that seemed to have a, a conflict or a problem with one of us, um, I think we would then step in and do more of an exit interview and say, hey, I noticed you weren't getting along with such and such staff person a lot while you were here. Now that you're leaving the internship, do you feel comfortable sharing why or what was going on with that? But otherwise, we use 
um, at their last week or two here, I give them a form, and it just it asks about if they felt they were treated well, if they got their learning needs met, if they felt they had, um, you know, if they were treated with respect and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if they learned increased knowledge in certain areas um, and that kind of thing. And then what do they wish was might have been different, uh, you know, about the placement while they were there. Um, and if they had any ideas on improving um, our internship program and that kind of thing. Um, I tell them that it's folded up in a little box and we don't open the box until the fall, the next fall. So when people leave um, us in the spring, for it's a fall and spring year internship, they'll fill it out in April or May, put it in the box. We don't look at it till fall. And there's several interns, so we don't know which intern wrote what. And then the summer interns, we get uh, a couple summer interns that are not social work students, and they fill it out as well. And then we review it, all of them, um, in the in the fall. And usually it's positive. Sometimes there's some good ideas in there, like it might be helpful to um, provide this information to interns or to have a schedule. So for instance, we have a safe place van and we have a sign out, a calendar thing so that any of us can sign out the van and the advocates get the priority because they provide the most work with our clients, but interns can use it too to go to court just to witness, you know, court cases, you know, to expand their learning or to go pick up donations, that kind of thing. But they need to coordinate it around when the full-time staff need the van. But we have a sign-out sheet. That's an example of something that could have come from an intern exiting, saying, you know what, it's sometimes I don't know whether I can just take the van to go pick up the mail. It would be nice to, because we have an off-site mail pickup, so it would be nice to have some mechanism in place. So that's an example of you get feedback like that, and you can implement it pretty easily. Yeah, that's a great example, too, because that's a clarity thing. Where it's like, you know, if we work here every day, and in your case, 25 years, you, in your head, everything's clear. Exactly. And everyone knows everything. But then an intern comes in and goes, I had no idea what the schedule for the van was. Right. Maybe you should do that. And, exactly. Know, oh, light bulb goes off. And I love doing those kind of things, like just improving process mm-hmm. and communication. So it's easy to implement. And that's a real practical way of utilizing the information that they provide. Right. And so whoever submitted that idea, if they're listening to this, they can know that now you have a schedule set up and it's, it's uh, being worked on. So that's great. Um, I have a, just a couple remaining questions. Um, and they're, they kind of revolve around just presumptions that I have. And I want to get your um, feedback on them. So um, there, you have a small team. And there are some supervisors and units across campus that are large teams. And so if they're listening right now and they're saying, this is all great. If I had two people on my team, I would also be an outstanding supervisor. What can I do with my large team? So my question is to you, what are the similarities and or differences between small and large teams? Is everything that you're saying uh, for supervisory you know, tactics, can that be applied to a large team or do you know of differences? Maybe you can't speak to large teams because you never managed one, but I think probably in your past you have. Yeah. What's so the I, crossover there? I mean, I, I work closely with colleagues that manage large teams. Mm-hmm. I, I observe, I see. So even if I haven't directly worked with a large team at MSU, I think a lot of this can apply because here's the thing. If you have 30 staff, probably only maybe five will want a flex schedule either a regular one or an occasional one. But the, all 30 people might occasionally want to work remote when somebody's a plumber's coming to fix their 
you know, something on their house. And so that can happen to any of us anytime. And, and to be able to say, you know what, Wednesday next week, I've got this and they aren't telling me if it's going to be morning or afternoon. Can I just work remote that whole day? I'll tell you what I'm working on. You can access me via email, call, text, whatever. Of course, I'm going to give that right. Even if I'm supervising a unit with 30 people. Now, if that person is, I mean, they're going to have to clear their calendar for appointments with clients and that kind of thing. But if they are a receptionist, it's going to require some more work. Um, might need some advance notice and saying, okay, let's try to um, two-hour increments or something. The rest of us can kind of cover the desk or something. I mean, we can we can work that out. But how often does a plumber come to the house for that one employee in a five-year span? Not very often, right? So a lot of this can be applied. It's really about having an openness to to care about your employees and to make it work. And that really relieves the anxiety for the individual because there's anxiety and stress that comes up just having to have the plumber come out. Exactly. But if there's added stress as to, I don't know if I can get this afternoon off work and my boss is so strict that maybe she'll only give me the morning and not the afternoon, that Mm -hmm. just amplifies it all. So if you can mitigate and reduce the stress that the person's already going through by, by support from the team in covering their shift or covering the desk or this or that, providing the flex schedule as a supervisor, then that's helpful, and it means a lot to the employee. And here's another way to be flexible. People, even if they have kids that are old enough to stay home on their own, you know, when they're older after school for a few hours, um, they get sick. Sometimes they need, you know, you want to be home with a sick kid, certainly a young one, but even an older child. And um, so here's the dilemma. Do you have that employee use sick time? Do you offer them the chance to work remote? This is what I would do. I'd say, and again, this is if I'm in a a unit of 30, because how often does this happen? Maybe often if they have a lot of kids and they get sick a lot, and then that becomes a different issue. But I would say um, work remote, and you can claim, you know, eight hours of vacation time or sick time. If you don't get any work done, you can claim six, you can claim four, you can claim two. Get as much done as you can, and let me know kind of what you worked on. And um, I will trust that you're going to be accurate in that. And if you need to claim time because a lot of your time was spent reading and comforting your child or taking him to the doctor, then clearly you're not working eight hours. But if you can, if they're doing their own thing and sleeping and you can get seven, eight hours worth of work, sometimes more productively than you can yeah. with the office interruptions, then, hey, do it. And let's, you, know, you claim whatever hours you need to claim. That's respect, yeah. right? But maybe in a large unit, if you have people taking advantage of that, you address that issue, not the flexibility. Sure. Yeah. That makes me uh, think about a follow-up question I had, but based on your answer, I can. I think it supports my answer that I had in my head, and that is, like you said, um, you address the issue, and then it's not flex scheduling that's the issue. It's this issue that's really the issue. And I was, so I had this question that I was going to say, well, what if you have an employee that um, – has 10 kids and they're always sick and they get a lot of flex scheduling. And then employee B has no kids and they start to get jealous that the other person is is having too much flex scheduling. And to use your answer again, it's not the flex scheduling that's the problem. It's probably employee B that <laughs> you cannot be jealous of an employee that has 10 sick kids because they... Well, you can be jealous, but it's not <laughs> rational. So this is what right, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I'd sit down with that jealous employee and I'd say, what's going on? You know, why are you so upset at this? And they're like, because it's not fair. They're not. Is it that they're... And I would address it with them. I'd say, look, is it that you don't think they're pulling their weight? Or is it that they get to work from home and be in their pajamas? And, you know, if that's the issue, then I might say, look, would it... Would you like to work remote, you know, every other week at home on a Friday or a Wednesday or a Thursday? Like, would you like that experience too? 
um, on a regular basis or occasionally and just even offering it. Um, even if it's not regular, they might say, if I could do that once or twice a month, I'd love it. They may never do it, but they know that you've heard them. Mm-hmm. So really, what is the jealousy about? Come on. It's no fun to be home with 10 sick kids, no. <laughs> even if it's one at a time. So, you know, what is it really about? But if it's about them not pulling the weight, then that's a different issue. And then yeah. you pull the other employee around and say, look, uh, we need to talk about what you're doing when you're working remote. You might need to take sick and vacation time if you're not pulling your weight. So I'm going to have to start asking you to, to tell me more what you're working on in in the days that you're homesick. And I know that's an extra burden to you, but otherwise you can claim sick and vacation time if you don't want to do that. Gives them the choice. Well, now I'm going to transfer to the last thematic question uh, that I had for this interview, um, which is about purpose. Um, and because I'm going to come at it like from this angle, your work at Safe Place is purpose driven. That's what I think. That's my assumption. Yes. That somebody that comes and works for you, either as an intern or as an employee, is on board with what you're doing there. And that probably motivates them to do great work. Okay. I've worked in places like that myself. Um, hospice. I used to work for hospice and I, you know, that's, yeah. that was important work and I didn't just do it for a paycheck. And so I came to work with a different mindset and a different attitude than some other jobs that I've had. But therein lies the question. Um, I've talked to a lot of outstanding supervisors whose teams are purpose driven. How, what advice can you give to a unit that's not safe place? Uh, that is doing more or less tedious secretarial work or grunt work or mowing the lawn um, that is not on its face, purpose-driven. But how can we motivate folks the same way that Safe Place's purpose motivates your team? Is there some magic to it? How, How can we get it out front to these employees so that they can show up to work with the same motivation that your staff probably has it all gets down to respect i mean i've i've spoken with people who have worked in janitorial janitorial services type thing here on campus or maintenance and um people who are the happiest are people who have supervisors that value what they do and support what they do and offer flexibility if things come up um and listen to their ideas on making their teams work better if there's problems with someone on the team that's not pulling their weight or is creating conflicts a good supervisor will listen to the staff that are voicing opinions about that and say, okay, let me think about how I can make our communication better or um, address this problem. It doesn't really matter what you do on your job. If you feel you're valued and respected, you're going to want to get up and go to work every day. And I think that I understand what you're saying about the purposeful work, but really mowing the lawn is very purposeful too. You just have to feel valued. And I think that units that have those kind of ongoing, what you could call tedious, whether it's office work or outside work or cleaning work, um, sometimes that does feel very tedious and it's tiring. Um, But if you have a good work team, good colleagues, good supervisor, you're going to feel good about the work you're doing. It's going to make a big difference. And a lot of that starts at the top. Yeah. And there's a tremendous amount of value. It's just sometimes not as easy to see. So you got to, as a supervisor, get through to that employee how important it is what they're doing. Yes. And we have that here on on our team all the time. And it's something that I've talked with uh, other folks on this podcast about. And it's, um, 
it's this thing where it's it's kind of this strengths finder thing where um, you're, one of your team members might be really good at task A and you're terrible at it and you might be good at task B and they're bad at it. But if you can leverage their strengths, absolutely, you know, and yours, like there's so much importance on what they're doing um, because without it, the team just doesn't function properly. Right. You know? Yep. Well, I think we've covered your entire 25 years here <laughs> at Michigan State in this podcast. Uh, we, we had a lot of talk about flex scheduling and motivating employees, uh, changes over uh, 25 years. Um, and I think that's how we'll just go out. What's the, uh, what's the biggest change you've seen since, you know, I noted here in my notes that you're an alum, alumni, yes. alumnus of Michigan State. Uh, so over the time you've been here on this great land grant university campus, what's the biggest uh, changes that you've seen? Well, when I was a student, um, we, you know, I just pretty much came in, did my work, that kind of thing. Um, but I do, I went here as an undergrad and as a grad, mm-hmm. you know, years later too. So uh, I remember the Women's Resource Center, for instance, as yeah. a student, and that was just a nice, safe place to go as someone identifying as female. Um, it just was kind of felt comforting, and even though you know I didn't have issues that made me want to retreat or get safety from anyone that I felt was bothering me or anything, it just was a nice space. Um, I feel like you know with that, with the absence of that, and you know there's a lot of uh, uh, staff and faculty of color leaving because they don't feel supported here at MSU, and um, there's a lot of that while there's a lot of services that have increased um, in the last two to four years on sexual assault. Um, and sexual harassment uh, and recognition towards that and that's been good in counseling services and EAP all kind of expanding and that, those are good positive things there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of having people feel valued here by their identities and that kind of thing so um, you know that's one thing I've just kind of watched over time the decades and seen kind of the different priorities and the different shifts um, and you know it's it's a part of how we feel about working here too and so there's a lot more work to be done. Yep. That's what keeps me coming back every day. And I'm sure you as well. Yes. Well, Holly Rosen, thank you very much. 2014 Outstanding Supervisor Award winner from MSU's Safe Place. Thanks for listening, everyone out there, to another edition of the Michigan State University Work Life Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>